Thanks, kids. Good morning again. Turn in your Bibles or in your bulletin, Hebrews chapter 13. Today is our last sermon in this sermon series. I began the sermon series on Hebrews by saying we don't know who wrote the letter, but whoever it was uh, is an absolute master communicator and theologian. And uh, I trust if you've been with us over the last four months, you would agree. Again and again, the author would begin with some portion of the Old Testament, and through a very sophisticated, theologizing, a very dense work of argumentation, he would point forward to something yet to come, and again and again, that something turns out to be what? It turns out to be what the kid's just saying here a second ago, Jesus the Messiah. I mean, the book's been all about Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus, the one who is better than Moses, better than the angels, has a better covenant, brings better promises. Jesus, the one who's the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, the one that we are supposed to fix our eyes on, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. My hope is that in our time in Hebrews, it's helped make Jesus more wonderful to you. Jesus, friends, must become the biggest, realist, most beautiful, most unavoidable reality in our lives because that's exactly what he is. He's in that entirely, 100%. Uh, May God give us the eyes to see that. Well, we've also said that the recipients of the letter were clearly Jews who had come to faith in Jesus, and yet were now experiencing persecution, tremendous opposition, and were in danger of falling away. So the continual message of the book has been that if you have decided to follow Jesus, there is no turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And there are dire consequences for turning back. We've read five or six different very fierce warning passages about God's judgment if we do, in fact, turn back. Well, here we are in the final Sunday in Hebrews, as I said. And chapter 13 is the one that we have in front of us. It feels rather anticlimactic, especially on the heels of chapter 12, where we get one of the most majestic visions of Jesus and about the future city and what we're moving toward. You get to chapter 13, it's, it's kind of this list of Uh, to-dos, various potpourri exhortations and ethical instructions. How should we view this? Is it a pure anticlimax? No. Here's how we should view chapter 13, by asking this question. How did a group of people who had no economic, no political, no educational, and no social power in the first century whatsoever, how did a people like that go on to overturn the world? How did that happen? The elements for how that happened are in our passage. So let's read it in verse 1 through the end of the chapter. First, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. 
For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Keep your lives from, from, free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say in response with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And as I said, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Skip ahead to verse 11. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering and We've talked a lot about the Levitical sacrificial system through the book of Hebrews and the priesthood. But the bodies of the, of the sin offering, they are burned outside the camp as unholy. And here's what he makes the, the, the connection. And so Jesus also suffered outside the camp, outside the city gate, to make the people holy through his blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp. Bearing the disgrace he bore. For we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Earlier in the song we sang. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Or some of the old translations, I'm going to cite it later in the sermon. To those who openly confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. There's a very sober word for your pastors and your elders. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Brothers and sisters, finally, verse 22, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. <laughs> I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come, to, I will come th- with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people, all the saints. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. How did these early Christians turned the world upside down. Number one, they did so by adopting a countercultural sexual ethic, a.k.a. a revolutionary sexuality. And we see this spoken of in verse 4 there, where the author talks about keeping the marriage bed pure. Then he lists two specific sexual sins, uh, adultery and sexual immorality. Adultery means if you're married, you can't have sex with somebody you're not married to, of course. The phrase sexual immorality in a lot of your older translations, it's rendered fornication, and that's referring to all premarital sex. Now, let's be honest. People today find the idea of abstinence from sex until marriage to be uh, so unrealistic as to be borderline ludicrous. Many people believe it's psychologically damaging to deprive oneself in that way for that long. That being said, this has been the consistent uh, teaching of the church down through the centuries. It didn't matter if you grew up Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic or Protestant. Uh, it's, the church has always said that, um, that sex is between a man and a woman 
inside the confines of marriage. One of the, um, one of the books that I go through premarital counseling with, uh, with couples before I uh, wed them, The Meaning of Marriage, it, uh, it has a very good chapter on this topic. And it begins by speaking of the different attitudes that are prevalent about sex in our world today. I want to go over those briefly first. Uh, one view of sex is that sex is, is a merely a natural appetite. Sex, kind of in a Victorian mode of thinking, used to be surrounded by all of these different taboos, but, but now we're enlightened, and now that we're on the other side of the sexual revolution, we realize that sex is, is it's like eating, or, or it's like any other good and natural appetite, which means that we should be free to fulfill that appetite however we wish. Likewise, there's no reason why we shouldn't sample lots of different cuisines and continually look for lots of new taste sensations, so to speak. Forbidding the satisfaction of a natural appetite or limiting that appetite till you reach somewhere in your mid to late 20s or early to mid 30s, that is considered unhealthy and actually is impossible. It's as impossible as trying to stop eating altogether, or so the view holds. The second prominent idea... Uh, uh, of sex in our society, this is actually a more ancient one, and that is, it's decidedly negative. Sex in this view is seen as part of our lower physical nature as distinct from our higher rational or more spiritual nature. Sex is, I don't know, beastly. It's, uh, It's dirty. It's a necessary evil for the propagation of the human race. And many people think that that's the Bible's attitude towards sex. Sex is demeaning and degrading, when, of course, that's not the case. I mean, the Bible includes some of the greatest love poetry that's ever been written and celebrates sexual passion and pleasure. Uh, It celebrates that sex is a good, pleasurable gift provided to us by our creator. it's It's not simply utilitarian. Uh, There have been times in church history when the church has had a a relatively negative view towards sex, but when it it did so, it certainly was never following the Bible's teaching. So, is sex just an appetite? Yes, it, it is an appetite, but as with any of our appetites, I mean, nobody gets to gratify their appetites as much as they want to, right? Uh, we struggle to discipline our eating because our appetite for food is seriously out of line with what our bodies actually need. It's an appetite, yes, but God has designed sex to be something so much more than an appetite, something so much more than just for our own personal gratification or personal expression. What is sex then for? Sex is saying, if you want to take notes, (laughs) sex is saying, I belong exclusively and permanently only to you. Sex is the God-given way of making a whole-souled commitment, the whole of your soul, exclusively to another person. And so we're not going to deify sex and say that sex is the end-all and be-all and the necessary uh, qualifications for a happy and good life. We're not going to denigrate sex and say it's only for the purpose of propagation. Um, we're not going to say that sex is merely biology. No, it's, it's for something so much more. It's the God-given way where they say, I belong exclusively and permanently to you. 
When you think of sex in those terms, then, you realize how incongruous premarital sex, for instance, is with what God intended sex, uh, what it was supposed to be for. And the reason the Bible counsels sexual abstinence before marriage, it's not because it has such a low view of sex, it's because it has such a high view of sex. One of the illustrations, and if you're visiting this Sunday, I don't want you to get the impression like this is a the topic that I talk on in sermons every Sunday. It's been a long time since I preached on sex. But one of the illustrations I've used in the past, sex is like super glue. Sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being just as you are literally and physically, physically joined to that other human being. If sex is a method that God invented for us to do whole life entrustment and self-giving, it shouldn't surprise us that we feel deep, deep connectional bonds with the other person. We naturally want to say extravagant things to the other person like, I will always love you forever. I will always be with you, um, and so on and so forth. Unless we deliberately disable this aspect of sex or through our practice numb the original impulse, you will feel a deep oneness not only of body but of soul. So then, the biblical view... Uh, is that sex outside of marriage, when you have sex outside of marriage, it's not simply morally wrong. It's actually personally damaging. It's like superglue when you accidentally superglue your fingers together. Has anybody ever done that? I have. And then you start to try to pull them apart. It tears your skin. Well, sex tears your soul when you are joined to someone and then it breaks. Yes, because of the incredible adhesive bonding properties, even if you're not married to the other person, you find yourself very quickly feeling marriage-like ties with that other person, feeling like the other person has obligations to you, when in reality, that person has no obligation whatsoever, not, not a single one. If you're not married, they don't have any moral responsibility, legal responsibility. They don't even have, the, they don't even have an obligation to call you back the next morning. This incongruity then leads to jealousy, to hurt feelings, to insecurities, to sometimes obsessiveness. It leads to many people staying in trapped relationships that are not good for them because they feel like they, they've somehow connected themselves and, and should not let that go. So here is then the Bible's view on sex. Simply put, you should never do with your body what you wouldn't do with the rest of your life. You don't unite with someone physically unless you are willing to unite with them also emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally, which is another way of saying marriage. (laughs) Consider in these terms. Let's say, for instance, you inherited uh, some rich uncle of yours dies, and you immediately have direct deposited into your bank account $1.5 million. It's yours inherited from a family trust, would you then, on Friday night, go out and become financially one with a guy that you met, met in the club? I mean, of course not. Would you become domestically one with him? Would you move in with him and his 16-year-old son? Of course not. It's, it's crazy. Well, why would you do with your body what you won't do with the rest of your life? You must never give somebody your sexuality, your body, without giving them your whole self. And you must never receive someone's sexuality, their body, unless you also receive their whole self. This whole idea, okay, I'm going to 
close down the first point now, <laughs> very long first point, but this whole idea of sex within marriage between a man and a woman, it was every bit as crazy in the first century <laughs> as it is crazy today. It was radical. Because um, sex is designed by God to be, the book says, a commitment apparatus. It is the way that we reinforce and strengthen the marital bonds that have already been enacted. Final word on this. If you have misused sex, if you have not kept the marriage bed pure, that is not the unforgivable sin. That is not the worst thing in the world. But what I would say is if you are, if you're here this morning and you're a disciple of Jesus Christ and you are sleeping with your boyfriend or you are sleeping with your girlfriend or you are involved in hookup culture or whatever, you do need to turn from that. Why? Because we're prudes and prigs. Why? Because he loves you. He knows how best this life works. And he knows this is for your own good. I know, it's a long point. Number two. How else did these early Christians turn the world upside down? Secondly, they adopted a revolutionary sexuality. Secondly, a liberating generosity. Let's read it about it in verse 5. He says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. It doesn't say that you should keep yourself free of money, does it? Money is good. Money can buy things. It can buy opportunities and experiences. Uh, Money can be used properly to extend God's kingdom on earth, as Shelton was praying at the beginning of the service. It's the love of money, which he specifically mentions. And he mentions it because the love of money is the most dangerous communicable disease that's in the world today. I mean, it's, it's the worst flu bug in the worst flu season that you've ever experienced before. We are so easily infected by the love of money because uh, it's a communi- communicable disease. There's an early Christian document written at the beginning of the second century. It was written as a way to defend the Christians against their Roman, Greco-Roman world critics. It's entitled, The Epistle to Diogenetus, D-I-O-G-N-E-T-U-S. I want you to hear how the Christians at the beginning of the second century are described. It says, quote, they share their table with all. They're very generous. They share their table with all, but not their beds with all. They share their table, but not their beds. They are poor, yet they make other people rich. They are short of everything, and yet they they have plenty among all themselves. What made the church so distinctive in that time is that they shared their table with everybody, their food, their money, their resources, but they shared their beds only with their spouses, which was the exact opposite way the Greco-Roman world worked. The Romans shared their beds with everybody, and they're extremely stingy with their tables. Sounds kind of like our culture today, doesn't it? We're very promiscuous with our bodies, and we're very stingy with our wallets. And he says what's distinctive about this community is the other way around. They were promiscuous with their money, and they were very stingy about their bodies. It's funny how history repeats itself. So how do we know then if we are in love with our money? I'm sure there's plenty of 
different proper diagnostics that you could use. But usually what I've found, people are in love with their money when they spend most of it on themselves or almost exclusively on themselves or when they hoard it because they're so afraid they're going to lose it. And to be clear, it's not just the wealthy who have this struggle. Of course not. You can barely be able to pay your rent and be living month to month and still be very much affected by this disease. So that's what he tells them in verse 5. But notice where it goes next, if you'll read it with me. Not only does he tell them to not love their money, to be content, but he gives the reason why they are able to do so in this short quote at the end of verse 5. Why? Because never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The reason we can engage in a liberating generosity, in the Greek, there are actually four negatives in those two lines. So it's kind of like, never, ever will I leave you. Never, never will I forsake you. David Pallison has a new book coming out in August entitled, Making All Things New, Restoring, Restoring Joy to the Sexually Broken. David Pallison I've mentioned him many times from pulpit, the executive director of the Christian Counseling Education Foundation. Um, One of the excerpts from that book that I read this past week is a spiritual meditation on the power of just four words that repeat in the Bible often that are kind of an analogous, an implication of of verse 5. Those four words, I am with you. I am with you. Whether it be in temptation to sexual sin, as he's writing down the book, or temptation to hoard our wealth, he says, consider this. When you are facing a temptation to any immorality, the first thing that you need to remember is there are no secrets. There are no secrets with God. Nothing is private because I am with you. Say it aloud, say it fast. Say it slow. I am with you. Say it back to him the way that Psalm 23 verse 4 says it. You are with me. You'll probably find that you need to say it more and more frequently. You are with me. Lord, make me to know that. Make me to understand that. For every time you remember that you are out in public then you live an out-in-public life. Well, I am with you means you're always out in public. You're always out in the open. Even when we sin by a sort of high-handed choice, we do so in broad daylight. Because he's still here. And always remember that you, you can open your eyes and acknowledge the daylight You can listen to that voice. You can turn around in order to help. When he says, I am with you, it's not to damn you. It's there to awaken and encourage you. Or secondly, what if you are overwhelmed by the grime of your past failures? What if you feel guilty, shameful, unacceptable? You ask, how could God ever accept me? Of course, it's those four words again. I am with you. I am with you. I'm not shocked by the ugliness of your evils. He says he came into the world to, cheat, to save the, the greatest of sinners. That's how Paul describes himself on two different occasions. Remember that Christ truly forgives, truly forgives. And by reminding yourself of those four words, what you will find is that the competing voices in your head, the lying, tempting voices, 
that are there become more and more obvious. You become aware of their presence, of their sly and argumentative persuasiveness. Those lying voices, the ones that will try to drown out God's reality. They will, try, they will scoff at what God has to say. They will scoff at you. They will seek to allure you and overpower you and to plunge you into a dark parallel universe that has no God. What a great turn of phrase. To the degree that you remember that your Lord is with you and you seek him, then all of those other voices will sound so devious and tawdry and hostile. And you'll say, why did I ever find them appealing to begin with? The conflict between good and evil will become so much more evident if you realize that he is with you. I am with you. The foundation for liberating generosity and so much more. Number three, briefly. Christians shock their world by thirdly, developing a radical hospitality towards all, towards everyone. Look with me in verse one. There's a play on words in the Greek in verses one and two. Number one, verse one Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Anybody want to guess what the, the word there is? Brother, brotherly love? Philadelphia. City of brotherly love. He basically says, keep on doing Philadelphia. Then in verse 2, he says, and do not forget to philoxenia. Philoxenia, which is the love of strangers. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitalities to angels without, without even knowing it. That's a, it's a reference to uh, Genesis chapter 18, when Abraham takes three strangers on the road and invites them into his house. They turn out to be angelic envoys. Abraham, he didn't go out looking for angels. He just went out with self-sacrificial love, service, and hospitality. Very similar to something that happens after the resurrection in Luke chapter 24, when you have two men walking along a road to Emmaus on their way from the city of Jerusalem, and some stranger walks up, and they're like, hey, come on, come on over to our house, and we'll share a meal with you, we'll break bread with you. Who's that stranger? <laughs> Turns out to be Jesus. So you don't go looking for angels or looking for Jesus Funny how, how they have a way of showing up when you're doing one or the other, Philadelphia or Philoxenia. And this is the distinctive of the early church. They loved both the insider and the outsider. They knew that God has designed us to open up our homes to other people, really to open up our lives to other people, to open up our schedules to other people. It's probably the biggest sacrifice we make is to be available, to allow others into our space, our time, and you know, our place. Not to isolate ourselves, which is a surefire path towards misery, to, but to make room for others, even others who are very, very different than us. And brothers, I love the fact that a lot of you do this so very well. I mean, there are a number of you where an outsider will come into our church and everybody will know that they look out of place and they look a little uncomfortable. And you just have a way of, of making them feel, feel loved. Um, and you open your homes to people. You, will, you look and find people who are lonely, uh, who don't have a Thanksgiving meal to share with anyone else, who are by themselves in the holidays. And you're just opening, you're opening things to all kinds of people. Show me a place where the gospel is really at work and I'll show you a place 
that is characterized by graciousness and availability. Availability is so rare for us. Finally, I want to conclude by reading verses 11 through 14 again and uh, tell a story associated with these verses. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for a city that is to come. At the age of 14, Dietrich Bonhoeffer announced, he announced to his family that he was going to be a pastor and theologian. His family was entirely shocked. His older brother told him that he was making a huge mistake since the church in Germany was so powerless, irrelevant, and unworthy of Dietrich's commitment. To which he responded, this is a 14-year-old boy, to which he responded, if the church is really what you say it is, then I shall have to reform it. (laughs) January 25th, 1934, Adolf Hitler calls hundreds of pastors and leaders from the churches in Germany to a conference in Berlin. Bonhoeffer was only 29 at the time. At this conference, Hitler tells the assembled pastors that he needs their unified support. I must have all of your support. And as a result, many pastors align themselves to Hitler, even sewing swastikas onto their pastoral robes. Heinous. As a reaction to this, a gentleman by the name of Martin Niemuller and Bonhoeffer founded... Uh, on the basis of verse 15, the confessing church is what they called it. Their call to the pastors was verses 13 and 15. Let us go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. And they said with fearlessness, we, ha- we have a Fuhrer and his name is not Hitler. They lamented what was happening to the heart and soul of their nation. And they said fearlessly amidst increasing persecution, Come outside to camp with us and confess his name. At this time, a number of pastors, fellow pastors, said to Bonhoeffer, well, you know what you really need to try and do? You need to try and convert Hitler. To which Bonhoeffer responded to them. He said, no, gentlemen, what is needed is that you yourselves be converted. He he said that to the bishops of his country. You need to be converted because of your cowardice in the face of the Nazis and your cowardly refusal to bear the disgrace of Christ. Please, he pleaded, please become Christians, because you are failing to confess Christ's name as Lord and God. During this time, Bonhoeffer wrote to a friend these these haunting words. He said, Christ is looking down at us and asking, is there anyone here who still confesses him? Bonhoeffer's history gets a little complicated with the assassination attempt on Hitler, Uh, 1943, he's thrown into prison, and it was only three weeks before the end of the war. He said, man, why couldn't? He's, he's executed with only three weeks until it's over. Why couldn't it have been the war be over four weeks earlier? But they hung him on a tree outside of a concentration camp. And there, uh, there's a plaque that is apparently still on the tree today. It's inscribed with ten words commemorating his death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer a witness to Jesus Christ, a witness to Jesus Christ among his brethren.
As we conclude the book of Hebrews, I want to remind you, what was the scorn, what was the shame, what was the disgrace that these original recipients of the letter had to bear? I mean, it was the disgrace of, of remaining Christians, remaining true Christians, not returning to Judaism. I mean, living with the, the disapprobation and the scandal of all your family members and knowing that the Roman government's just going to come down hard on you very quickly. It was, it was a, a, a very high, heavy personal cost. Indeed, the, the, what is the title of Bonhoeffer's most famous work? It's the cost of discipleship. In the cost of discipleship, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come in, to come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to die to this world's approval, to this world's way of thinking, to his own passions and pleasures, to his own selfish desires, to come and die and live for the glory of Jesus the Messiah. And brothers and sisters, what is the scorn that we will have to bear? I mean, what is the shame that our culture is going to try and shovel on us so that we're neck deep? I don't know what it will be exactly. I have my suspicions. I don't know what plans he has for us, the American church or, or what have you. But I do know this, that when the time comes and we are called to go outside the camp and meet Jesus, we must go. We must go. We must go because Jesus is everything this book has told us that he is and infinitely more. Jesus is is sufficient. Jesus is superior to everything. Jesus is is worth it. (laughs) He's worth it. And so I conclude with the conclusion of the letter. May the God of peace who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, May he equip you with everything good to do his will. And may he work in you what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people said, amen.